Welcome to season two of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 virtual edition, the Easter isolation edition, and this is RV15. <laughs> Virtually, hello to you, Ben. Hello, Tim. How are you enjoying social distancing? I brought you a present, Easter eggs, hey, virtual Easter eggs, funny. so you can't get fatter at this distance. I will count those to make sure I get them all. Exactly. I, I too bought you a present. <laughs> It's, it's, it's kibble. <laughs> Actually, I didn't get you anything, but um, that's very nice. That's a lovely gesture. You, you went all right. The Easter Bunny still found you in lockdown, clearly. You did, yeah, yeah. I don't know about this social distancing. I think we should call it physical distancing because I reckon I've never been more connected with the outside world as I have been over the last week. Yeah, see, I've been using it as a good excuse to um, let my misanthropic tendencies come to the fore and avoid any form of connection it's great i like it it's a it's an introvert slash misanthropes perfect scenario mm. okay well let's get into rv15 a few things to talk about today the episode with mick nevin where we worked out the necessary tactics on fighting the apocalypse um, heather yep. taylor and just gently rowing your boat across the pacific Row, row, row your boat. Then Monica Georgieva, how to break through those glass ceilings. Let's get on with the show. Season two started with episode one, the tactics to fight the apocalypse with Mick Nevin, who hosts the Apocalypse Comedy Podcast. Comedy Podcast. And gee, timely. Yeah, gee, that was all pre-corona, certainly recorded pre-corona, sort of, you know, before the world's attention was focused on corona. Um, and in, in fact, it's funny, this has been a, an apocalypse of sorts, but certainly not the zombie apocalypse we're preparing for. I don't know that your molasses trap are going to do much good in the corona apocalypse. Well, I think the equivalent for the molasses trap is physical distancing and good hygiene. That's the modern day version of the coronavirus's molasses trap. Are you, are you claiming you invented those things? <laughs> <laughs> Well, the metaphoric molasses trap is washing your hands, making sure you observe good physical distance and staying virtual in your podcasting. Yeah, which I, I am enjoying, actually. Um, okay, so, yeah, Mick, we, we actually went through a, a bit of ground. Not all of it was, was completely tongue-in-cheek. There were some really good discussions, I thought, on um, 
some of the the aspects you'd want to see in uh, an apocalypse, but also some references to some of his other guests who have actually taken this thinking a lot more seriously than we did. Um, some interesting uh, reflections on some of the preppers that he's, he's spoken with. They're probably having the last laugh now in this um, this day and age. Mm. Well, we thought the centre of gravity would be Bunnings in the apocalypse. Clearly it's not. It's been the toilet paper aisles of Coles and Woolies. <laughs> yeah, that's. I reckon that's embarrassing on a global level. I don't think any country's had exactly the same sort of toilet paper panic buying that Australia has for some reason, have they? Well, I'd like the toilet paper buyers to put their hands up and admit to it. Maybe there could be a national audit where you, you have a special enforcement unit that comes and counts toilet paper rolls and just... What, what do you reckon, in all seriousness, what do you reckon, like the biggest panic buyer hoarder, how many rolls of dunny paper do you reckon they've got in their house? Do you reckon anyone's cracked a thousand? I don't know about a thousand, but you could definitely see a 10 pack of 24 rolls, you know, 240. And if you did the math on that and assuming that you need five or six squares after going to the bathroom, I don't know how many years that's gonna last them for. It will probably last you until the zombie apocalypse. Yeah. Um, but, okay, so you're, you're claiming, well, you, cl you came up with the molasses trap, I'll give you that. Yeah. Um, we've actually had uh, an, some agricultural expertise run their eyes over the molasses trap come header um, methodology and didn't come off too well, I don't reckon. Our good friend Charlie um, says that his, his view is that uh, we're going to run into trouble with the header they tend to block up easily. And he, he did later come back to say that, you know, maybe, maybe, Tim, you could modify the conveyor and drum so that instead of going up into the machine, the must just goes straight out the back. That may be a way of bypassing the, the inherent flaws in your plan. Uh, look, I'm a big thinker, Ben. I'm not dealing down into the servicing and maintenance of the header. No, you don't, you don't do details well, Tim. <laughs> but, but look, the molasses trap was genius. The, the specifics on how we need to service and maintain it, I'll leave that to the logistics department. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, okay. I, I'm still, my jury's still out on the molasses trap. Um, I do love the image of you getting the, the posthumous Bunnings cross, but <laughs> accidentally stepping backwards into it as the, as the headers are bearing well, down remember, on you. Remember, it was, it was an integrated obstacle plan, so it wasn't just the molasses traps. We were using lures to draw people into the slip and slides. It may have had some stakes in there that ultimately saw them in the molasses trap. So don't take the reductionist view with me, Ben, that it was just a molasses trap. It was an integrated obstacle plan. And, and I will give you the fact that you, you said the molasses trap was just a name. We were using something stickier than molasses because I don't think that's going to stop the zombies. I think it'll just make them tastier. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, good episode with Mick and um, yeah, lots of fun. And, you know, heart goes out to guys like Mick um, and we, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, some other episodes with musicians, but people um, across all fields, all sectors are, are getting smashed by, um, by coronavirus and the lockdown, but probably not too many more uh, or harder hit than, than in entertainment folk, people who, who rely on being able to put on a show for a, for a living. And I was trying to separate coronavirus from this particular RV, but it's nearly impossible to do that. And you and I were sitting down and 
observing physical distancing and thinking about looking around the neighbourhood at all of the businesses that have been directly impacted or were a second and third order effect of the problem. And it's, it's mm. difficult to see any businesses that haven't been impacted. Um, and the really terrifying thing is that we all know people who have been personally affected by, by the virus. So it's quite tragic in that regard. But yeah, good point yeah. on McNevin um, and all of the artists and comedians that uh, have been directly affected. I mean, they've had all of their gigs cancelled and you know, heart really goes out for them. And it's great to see them online trying to make a fist of doing something innovative to keep us amused. Yeah, and I think, you know, on our side, we can, we can do a little bit by going to sites like Bandcamp, which we might talk about again a bit later on, but, you know, buying merch, you know, even if you can get this stuff for free on YouTube, even if you've heard it before, um, in many ways, let's think about that kind of purchase as, as um, giving a bit of a leg up, a bit of a, a you know, means of, of keeping that kind of industry afloat, uh, at least until we get out the other side of the, the immediate lockdown impacts of the virus. And we can't leave without you having killed off Mark Wales, and he did have a right of reply on that. <laughs> You killed him off quickly in the zombie apocalypse. I reckon I killed him off about exactly where he was <laughs> dying. <laughs> um, yeah, no, in fairness, and, and we might we might circle back around on that. But but Whaler did have a right of reply. I I don't actually think he 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 was contrary to the idea that he'd go quickly, but looking good in his jacket. He's got past performance wearing a leather jacket and cowboy boots on Survivor. But he did, in his right of reply, he said, look, if, if I made these jackets thicker, they're a fantastic uniform to combat. Yeah, the combat the zombie bite. And I, I reckon I've said about three times, I feel about 10 shades tougher when I put on my kill capture jacket. They are a good morale boost. Um, so yeah, no, there's, there's hope posthumously for, for the legacy of Mark Wales in the zombie apocalypse. So on a scale of zero to not much toughness, where are you after you wear the jacket? Uh, I, I mean, my default setting is pretty tough. Which is not much. My default setting is not much. And when I put the jacket on, I'm, I'm marginally less not much. <laughs> <laughs> well, he also talked about passing out salsa and muffins. I, I can attest to that. Mark is actually a really good cook. The, the guy's got a lot of hidden talents, but um, yeah, his guacamole was 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 good. And he he used to actually go like bring guacamole to parties, but these were kind of all boy, you know, army sort of parties where there was not a lot of you know it wasn't bring a plate type party. <laughs> but Mark would bring guacamole. Always went down a treat. Actually, everyone was thankful. All right, well, let's kill him off again in Season 2, Episode 1, because it's not our place to talk about him in Mick Nevin's episode, but good fun episode with Mick. And I tell you what, you know, it was a bit life-imitating art after that and coronavirus hitting. Turn on my TV set, I don't believe it, man. But through the paper, I don't understand. Death and destruction, if they're coming for late. Actually, speaking of people who have been impacted by the coronavirus, Heather Taylor. Heather Taylor, she got to Monterey Bay, California, and then had to go into isolation. 
and I don't think she's picked up a boat, but today actually in her social media, she's out of isolation. She's waiting for an opportunity to launch. She wrote us a note giving us an update the other day. She said she's pretty much got two months for the weather window uh, before yep. that weather window closes. And if the two, month, two months passes and goes, she won't launch. So we hope and pray that she does get out inside the next eight weeks. Is she taking social distancing a bit far? <laughs> uh, that's some of your best stuff. Well, 58 days, 58 yeah. days to 112 days is around about where she thought it could be, 58 being a real inside mark or 112 being an outside market. If I don't um, if I remember correctly, she's got enough provisions for 120 days and the fastest woman ever to paddle it did it in 99 days. Yeah. Um, so, no, interesting. Um, I actually do have some things for you, Ben. I'm going to refer you to a question you asked at around about the 13th minute mark. Yeah. Um, so what, what ultimately is Heather trying to do? I don't know, row, row a boat across an ocean. So at 13 minutes and three seconds, you ask the question, are you allowed to have a sale? <laughs> so let's talk about how you actually move forward in this thing. Clearly you're rowing. Yeah. Are you allowed to have a sale? <laughs> I reckon that's a legitimate question. I was going to ask an outboard. Like, can you have an outboard? <laughs> well, maybe an outboard and a sail, because I, I reckon that if you had a sail, you're going to be doing it a fair bit faster than the 58-day record. Mm. Um, the, the next beautiful question you asked, headwind or tailwind, that could be negative or positive. Oh, if, if you've got a headwind or a tailwind, it'll make a big difference. Yeah, positive or negative. Yeah. See... <laughs> <laughs> That is, those are, those are true statements. That's the kind of insight that you get on the Unforgiving 60. And look, and my last one, probably my favourite, will you be rowing 24 hours a day? <laughs> and what about the rowing? What's your um, sort of daily routine in terms of you're rowing 24 hours a day? <laughs> Tim, you have clearly taken me out of context. I reckon that was asked in the sort of question like, you know, what's your routine? Are you going to eat, sleep? You know, I assume you're not rowing 24 hours a day. I, I think, yeah, you're setting me up, Tim. This is, this is attack journalism. I, I actually think what it is is very poor research. Research? <laughs> <laughs> well, very poorly ordered questions. <laughs> No, I'm just asking the question that I, that I think I'd want to hear if I was a listener. You know, just to, I, I kind of knew you couldn't use a sail, but I just wanted to clear it up. Mm, yeah, I mean, rowing across the Pacific, who would have known that you can't use a sail? Yeah, and I also probably knew that she wasn't going to row 24 hours a day for 120 days straight. But it was kind of just leading into the, the, the discussion. Mm. Headwinds and tailwinds, I mean, they can be positive or negative. Yeah, and you choose which, Tim. I think you do, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think they choose which. Well, you choose how you... How you it's, it's stoicism. You, you choose how you, you, um, you interpret them. Yeah, okay, so no, some pretty lightweight questioning by myself, which is... Um, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. But 
a great episode and a, a pretty impressive endeavour, which I really hope goes ahead. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, the solitude and exertion plus, and certainly she's going to be well-practised from, you know, the last two weeks in isolation. But it'll be interesting. I mean, it, it was one of the most impressive things I recall from the Alyssa Azar um, episode was the couple of false starts that she had prior to her first Everest, successful Everest summiting attempt. Mm. Um, and I, I thought it was just amazing, her ability to, you know, train a whole season, have that sort of window and then have it dashed by by unforeseen events, but then get back on the horse, recock, and then look down the barrel of another year's training. Um, that is pretty impressive. That's going going a little further, I reckon. And, and um, yeah, that, that may be the same situation, unfortunately, that Heather finds herself in. But yeah, it's 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 um that to me is a, a pretty impressive thing to overcome that kind of anticlimax of, of training for something, almost hitting that peak and then, then having it taken away from, or even the attempt taken away from you by something out of your control. Now, you mentioned stoicism, and maybe this is a nice segue before we leave, Heather. Um, I've been doing a bit of reading over the last week or so. It's put my nose back into some books. Mm. And um, one of the things that I have been reading is the history of the Stoics, and I'll get you to reflect mm. on this, but some really interesting um, observations on Stoicism. And Seneca, who was one of the Stoics who was exiled um, to Corsica for eight years, Seneca used their time productively in exile and, in fact, wrote a letter to Lucilius, quote, Until we have begun to go without them, we fail to realise how unnecessary many things are. We've been using them not because we needed them, but because we had them. I've not heard that one. That's a very cool quote. But how true is it? Mm. Mm. I think you've realised over the last few weeks what's really important in life. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're dead right. And and also just that, that whole, all these cliches, glass half empty and all that sort of thing. I mean, um, you you look around at how many people have just been totaled by by this, you know, whether they've lost a loved one, whether they've had illness themselves, whether their entire industry, sector, whatever has been destroyed. Um, you know, I, you think about, Bali, the, the classic sort of tourist um, reliant holiday destinations. And, you know, you get tsunamis and these kind of things that level it, but there's a, you know, there's some chance of, of coming back in the short term and, and um, it's sort of external support. But something like this will, will flatten uh, economies like that for, for so long. And so, yeah, for us in these, you know, first world uh, havens to, to have to endure a, a few inconveniences is is a bit, you know, it's, it's trifling in comparison. Joe Rogan reckons it could be a rehearsal and nothing more than a rehearsal, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, right. He said that, you know, if we were to have a large, you know, media strike or a significant tsunami, some sort of natural disaster, that would affect us in ways that are far more challenging than they are now. I mean, now you can go to your house, you've still got Wi-Fi, you can get to supermarkets. Some of those circumstances would mean widespread instant devastation. Yeah, yeah, and, and that infrastructure devastation behind it. I mean, one of the things that's been uh, so crippling about this is that it's affected the whole world at once. So we've got whole supply chains knocked out, all that sort of stuff. But 
the electronic infrastructure is still there. I mean, bottom line, things are still moving in terms of imports and exports to the for the the most part. But yeah, something that really knocked down. Um, well, like you said, the internet would be a big one. Can you imagine doing this without Netflix? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the water utilities, telecommunications, remove any of those and we'd be far less comfortable. And that's the thing. It's not as if we're uncomfortable. No. No, it's actually, it's been in in many ways kind of from a family perspective, and I, I guess everyone's in different boats, but um, with a little nuclear family, there's been some beautiful sort of old school family moments and yeah, no one's hungry, no one's cold, no one's sort of, you know, sanitation's not a problem. So, yeah, it could be far, far worse. I've been devastating on Scrabble and Family Feud, by the way. Those board games have come to the fore. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because my eight-year-old just beat me at chess and I was trying. <laughs> but you're probably only using your left hand, so you'd be okay. Yeah, no. Um, so, yeah, some, some, uh, some good moments and, as you say, some some chances to reflect on on what's actually important and just how lucky a lot of us are um, in this sort of what I think most of us could describe as a minor inconvenience compared to to what some people are experiencing at the moment. How's your faith in humanity? Look, I I refuse. In fact, I I haven't been watching a lot of the, the sort of news stories that talk about fights over toilet rolls and, you know, this sort of thing. Equally, I, I understand there's some beautiful things happening around the world. I mean, you see the, the Italian uh, piazzas with people singing to one another. And um, I've seen, uh, you know, examples of, of people paying, you know, the old guy at a, a coffee shop that, that's near us that's still open as people doing their exercise. They can get a, a quick takeaway coffee and... Um, you know, old guy only had cash and they weren't taking cash and someone paid for him. I mean, those kind of little micro expressions of humanity give me hope. I, I'm sort of an optimist in that sense. I think I'd like to think that we wouldn't, given that, that scenario you spoke about before, the total loss of infrastructure, I'd like to think that we'd go to a pretty collegiate place before we went to somewhere like Cormac McCarthy describes in the road. Yeah, yeah. And let's hope when we recover from this, we don't lose sight of those things that are important and those things that were convenient, but probably not so important. Yeah. And I wonder, I, I, I'm really interested in where we go to in terms of face-to-face meetings again. So there's a lot of rhetoric about saying, oh, we can do all this stuff on Zoom and, and we'll never travel again. But I wonder, particularly if this goes on for a long time, if we won't recognise that there's a lot more to actual uh, work meetings than just the conduct of work, that there is a big social interaction, that there's a big something intangible about being in the same room as someone um, that I wonder if we'll yearn for at the end of this um, uh, after having sort of gotten so used to doing things via Zoom and WebEx and, and these kind of platforms. Mm. And it is challenging on the video conference with people who are in, have got their video on and interrupted or those that don't have their video on or on mute, you can't pick up on the subtleties of body language and seeing how the discussion's resonating around, around that group. Although I had an excellent one, um, a work call, a, a lady who was working from home, four teenage boys in the, the room all doing their school from home. 
And at, at one stage, one of the boys presented a chicken over this lady's shoulder. And we're, we're having a very serious work call about business continuity and, and these sorts of things. And the chicken joined the call, which has not happened in a face-to-face -face meeting in, in my experience. Now we're getting some crackers. I was on um, a video call with a, with a client who was in her bedroom and in walked the husband into the bathroom, door opened and started to use the toilet. <laughs> Again, not something you get in that face-to-face. That -face. So there's, there's swings and roundabouts. Oh, we're going to miss the chicken and the public toilet, you know, surely. Yeah, yeah. No, we've, we've, we've become very used to that sort of thing, which is maybe it's a good thing. Episode three, placing explosive charges on glass ceilings with Monica Georgieva. Well, you're probably best placed to kick this off, Ben, because you were a member of staff when Mon did her selection course. Yeah, Mon's a superstar. Um, a, a very funny crossing of our paths. Again, we'd worked together in uniform, and I think I even mentioned in that episode, but I'd, I'd been very impressed with her um, with, with everything I'd seen uh, professionally when we were both in the army. And then we sort of went our separate ways, I got out, and the next time I saw her was at puppy preschool. We'd, all, we'd both bought these little puppies together and, and sort of caught up again. And, and that was great serendipitous sort of little crossing of paths to, to, to see Mon again as she was getting out of the, the army. But yeah, really amazing story. And I, I'd heard bits of it before, um, so we'd, we'd done that sort of where do you come from, what's your story type thing as part of selection. Um, and, and she said elements of her story, which was clearly uh, a childhood less ordinary, but not to that same kind of detail that we explored in the, the episode. And just amazing. And, and the thing that I really like about Mon is that none of it is, is said to boast or is said to seek any form of sympathy or any form of adulation. It's just stuff that's happened to her, part of who she is. And, and I, I think she's um, really sort of uh, uses that well as, 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 as part of who she is today. Mm. And none of it's because she wanted to be the first. Yeah, that bit was cool as well, wasn't it? That, um, and, and sort of really, I guess it, it, well, to an extent, it sort of degendered the the conversation in that you know it it, it was just about a human being doing a, a really cool job, um, and she was driven by the that desire to to achieve something, to do well, and and to do the best she could. And as you say, the the fact that she was uh, breaking so many paradigms, and I I firmly believe setting such an amazing example for for other women. Um, was almost a byproduct of, of just her desire to, to keep going a little further. Well, he parked his car outside the Rose Hotel and he headed for the bar. And not a wink and ever vessel smile as he motioned for a jar. Well, he ain't been home since 1973, since he was 17. Twenty-one, it sailed the seven seas, but it never seemed that far. 
love music and the arts and truly believe that these form a key component of resilience and make the world a much more beautiful place. Music played on this podcast can reach over a thousand ears a day, and the incredible artists who gave us permission to use their music on season one have been downloaded tens of thousands of times on Spotify. If you are a musician or band who wants to expose your songs to a global audience in over 100 countries, please get in touch with us at debrief at unforgiving60.com.